Welcome back to The Deeper Cut, a podcast ministry of Mercy Hill Presbyterian Church. It is great to be with you again this week. My name is Tim Pasek. I'm one of the ruling elders at Mercy Hill and the host of The Deeper Cut podcast, and I'm joined by our pastor and my fellow elder, Phil Henry, in our studio today. How are you doing today, Phil? I'm doing great, Tim. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Glad to be here again for another Deeper Cut recording um, as we continue in the Patriarch series. And actually, we, we've we've kind of tackled the main patriarchs. Could you consider Joseph a patriarch in a way, I guess? I, He's I kind have, of like an offshoot in a yeah, way. Yeah, I have thought of him sort of patriarchally, I guess. But technically, the, the big three, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are... Um, they admit no competitors. Right. <laughs> <laughs> There's no more space on Mount Rushmore. Yeah, just the just three on this one. Right. On this mountain. I, I guess I would sooner put Adam and Noah mm. on on the mountain than mm-hmm. I would um, Joseph. But it is amazing how much Joseph dominates Jacob's story, starting in uh, 37 where Genesis 37 where we were this week. Mhm. Yeah, you you can't you can't get to the end of Genesis without with it goes through Joseph. I mean, the the other brothers are are obviously very involved in the whole thing, but um Joseph has a a very special part to play mm-hmm. in the life of God's people up until the end and then Jacob sort of does a little bit of a maneuver and redirects to Judah. <laughs> I, I don't know if we're going to get there in the series. I hope to. Okay. I hope to. All right. Well, yeah, then I'm foreshadowing gonna... everyone. Foreshadowing. That's right. That's right. And I want to I wanna give um, young Miss Evans her due, Shiloh. We got we to gotta give a little shout out to Shiloh before we finish the Patriarch series, don't you think, Tim? <laughs> yes. The, I mean... I'm dropping breadcrumbs all we, over the we, place we, here. You, you could do a three-year sermon series on the Patriarchs, probably fairly, I don't want to say easily, you know, but just in terms of content and the amount thereof. Um, yeah. There's going to be a lot of things that we're not going to have a chance mm-hmm. to, even on the deeper cut, get mm-hmm. into. Um, but maybe okay. maybe we'll uh, co-author a book, Tim. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> with all your with all your <laughs> spare time. Well, if you don't have time to write a book, brother, then there's no way that, I, <laughs> that I'm not even gifted in that way. Okay. You have the gifting, okay. at least to write. Um, but I'll, I'll buy your first copy. That's okay. for sure. I'll read, I'll proofread it for you. All right. Um, I would be better suited. I'm not saying I'm good, well suited to do this, but I would be better suited to be your audiobook narrator than okay. to be your co-author. Okay. We'll put it that way. Okay. So, <laughs> although I think, uh, maybe Scott would be a better narrator than he's, he's got the, he's got that. That voice, the je ne sais quoi. Yeah, yeah. And we, we we had a good time with him last week. I miss him being here this week. We had an empty couch in the studio today, but we do have Rocky. 
So, ever, ever faithful. Ever, <laughs> ever, ever true. <laughs> I was just going to say that. Ever faithful, ever true. The full, the full Nelson over here. Mm-hmm. So anyway, enough with the pleasantries. Um, we're continuing in, in the sermon series. We've come to Joseph. Um, so I guess in a way, the, the patriarch series is, is done in terms of the patriarchs, as we were kind of saying. But we're continuing onward. And um, you, you took actually a big chunk of Joseph's story in I your did. sermon this week. So Genesis 37 and 39. Um, and basically from kind of the beginning of Joseph's life through uh, some of his struggles mm-hmm. and, and how the Lord kind of brought him into Egypt, if you will. Um, and the focus being his humiliation. Mm-hmm. So maybe before we dive into some of the deeper cut content, uh, we didn't talk a lot of homiletics last week, I don't think. We normally reserve a couple of minutes at the beginning. Um, you know... What I don't want to be just so broad as to say, well, why this part of Joseph's life? But you know, we have a lot about Joseph, um, and you took a like I said, you took a big chunk here, and the focus was not so much, <clears throat> wow, look at what <clears throat> Joseph did, or look at how God used Joseph. Mm-hmm. Although those things came into to play, but the focus or your your oomph, if you will, of your message was um, kind of the need for Joseph in a way and for us to kind of embrace God's humbling hmm. of us, if I could put it that way. Yeah. Someone commented that I took a, a different tack mm-hmm. than she has heard because she's heard sermons about Joseph before, but she hadn't heard this approach. And at, at some point, she was brought to tears. Hmm. So that's, um, you know, the spirit does what he does. Another brother in the church through text, you know, so much of pastoring happens by text these days. Uh, I do want to write a book called, uh, SMS and pastoral care reflections from the front lines or something like this. Um, but, texted me and said that he and his wife had a good conversation about it really appreciated the message and uh, you know i i my feelings about the sermon are so irrelevant it it, it's just so much not about how i feel about Mm -hmm. the message so this this could be a homiletics comment um i hear the sermon before anyone else i'm the first listener it's first applied to me Mm -hmm. If it doesn't land its arrows into my heart, it shouldn't ever see the light of day. So I, I sometimes call that the, um, um, it's, it, maybe it's a terrible phrase, but I called it the narcissistic view of preaching. If I need to hear it, then, you know, Narcissus is looking in the, in the pond. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I gaze into the mirror of the word, James 1, 24, 25, then, um, um, that's probably, and, and it's convicting and helpful and important in my life. It's probably something that other people need to hear as well. One of the benefits of a long-term pastorate is that the congregation gets to watch the pastor mature, 
suffer, struggle, celebrate, and ultimately they're kind of an audience to his sanctification. And so 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in earth and vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power might be seen to be from God and not from ourselves. Over the years, hopefully the church can see that whatever gifting the minister has is from the Lord, mm-hmm. not to elevate him, but to, to, to glorify Christ. So it Sounds like your message from yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Because by the time Joseph recognized that God was using him, he was ready to be made aware of that fact. That's a good point. So, um, but being, you know, being, being brought to tears with a story about Joseph's humiliation, I guess being honest is so important in pointing out. And I, I gave some silly examples of my own humiliation experiences in life. And uh, the one related to my wife, she said, was that like, were you talking <laughs> about yesterday? I'm, I was like, honey, no, that's like a hundred arguments that we've had <laughs> over and over again. There was no one fight I was pointing. I laugh because I can, I can, uh, yeah, uh, um, commiserate with you. Yeah, that. yeah. But homiletically, I didn't read the passage. I mean, I'm not going to read two entire chapters of script. I could, right, but, right. Um, so I just, I was cherry picking kind of extended portions at points, or just verses that gave you mental hooks to follow the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I hate doing that, but I also hate the fact that I can't count on people to have read this beforehand mm-hmm. or to read it afterwards. So it's it's a little bit of a catch-22. I know that most people aren't going to read, and yet uh, I wish they would. Hmm. But... Um, you know, all in all in time, the reformation of the church takes place over over many many years, and hopefully, our church continues to grow in biblical literacy as these stories get opened and unpacked to whatever extent we can do it. And you know, on a Sunday morning well, I'm, sermon, I'm going to um, pause us real quick. What's your passage for this upcoming week? I'm I'm not preaching this week, but. The passage that the preacher has chosen <laughs> is Genesis 41, I believe, okay. which is related to uh, Joseph's dreams. So, Mercy Hill members and regular attenders, as soon as you're done listening to this podcast, or if you feel led even now, hit pause, go read Genesis 41, think about it, maybe read it again before Sunday. So that way you're prepared to be a good hearer of God's word on Sunday morning. And I'm talking to myself as well. Amen. So. Amen. Yeah, I mean, the catechism says, how can we, uh, how is the word to be made effectual unto our salvation? And it says, by diligence, preparation, and prayer. How's the preaching of the word to be made effectual? So preparation, the... The children, and you know, catechism is a children's teaching tool, although it's above a lot of our heads, even as adults, but the children are to prepare to hear the word uh, prayerfully and diligently 
at least I think in part by, by, you know, maybe, maybe reading the preaching portion for the upcoming Sunday, or it might just mean just being so consistently in the word that nothing that's preached will come as a surprise. Mm. I guess that's kind of how I've often viewed it. Mm -hmm. It is helpful. I would say if you're unfamiliar, I think so. To get your whereabouts. Yeah, I think so. Because it makes the job of the preacher that much... That way you don't have to feel the need to provide a bunch of context. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's important in the sense of that, to me, um, here's it, tie tie into your sermon a little bit. Uh, Before you prayed, you talked about the power, you're praying basically like the parable of the sower. Yes, that's true. And to me kind of reading in advance or to what you said, Phil, just daily methodical reading of of the scriptures helps that soil to be tilled and and fertile and ready to accept seed that's being planted. Yeah. So if you want to ignore, never pick up your Bible, it's going to make it much harder for that seed to get into the ground is, is kind of my point. Very true. So very true. Um, shall we? Shall we dive into some of the finer details? Sure. And, and um, so we we have already mentioned that the subject matter of the sermon was Joseph's kind of his humiliation. So, what do you think of that word, Tim? I think that we misread that word generally. Okay. I think we hear humiliation and we think embarrassment, or at least that that's where my head generally goes. Mm-hmm. Um, Something to be avoided at all costs. Right. But, but more like, um, you feel pity, you feel sorry. That was an unfair thing. That was a bad thing. That was really humiliating for, for him. Mm-hmm. Right. And, I'm not saying that those things aren't necessarily true. Just a close cousin to a hate crime. <laughs> maybe. I mean, I mean it's maybe, it's maybe that I I think f- f- in in modern discourse and we we avoid it. It's it's that painful. Right. Not, or it's that wrong for someone to have done that to a person. Right. Exactly. Precisely. So that's not me uh, making light of a hate crime. It's me intensifying how most people feel about being humiliated yeah right so if you even inadvertently humiliate somebody how could you have done something right like that it's game over right so but it's i was using it in the older sense it's the title of my sermon Mm -hmm. along the lines of the catechism which uses humiliation as we were discussing before we hit record on the humiliation of Christ uh, as one of his two estates. So um, Jesus has uh, comes as the incarnate God in his estate of humiliation and in his estate of exaltation. Mm -hmm. So in his estate of humiliation, he's born and that in a low condition made under the law undergoing all the miseries of this life, and then how does it end? <laughs> the wrath of God. The wrath of God. 
And the cursed death of the cross. And the pains of hell. In, in being buried and continuing under the power, the power of, of death, death for, for a time. time. Yeah. yeah. So, humiliation in this sense is the journey that our Lord Jesus Christ takes as incarnate, God incarnate, to being a perfect Savior. Hmm. Now, he comes to the womb as the second person of the Trinity as a person, not needing any additional material, DNA or otherwise, in order to establish himself as a person. He is the divine, eternal person of, of the Godhead. But this person is, we won't, you know, it's not fused, it's not welded, it's not mixed, but joined is the language that the church will often use. This, this divine person, uh, the human nature of, of Mary is joined mystically and supernaturally and uh, mysteriously joined to the divine person, making God incarnate. That human nature is a, is a wriggling baby in, you know, I mean, at first it's just a few cells. Mm -hmm. So how the divine person is, has joined to him a multicellular human embryo is beyond, it's just beyond our ability to, to grasp. But fast forward nine months and it's a wriggling baby in, in the manger in Bethlehem. And that baby is not ready to die on the cross, just biologically. The baby needs to grow up to be a full-grown man. But then in, in the baby's awareness, in his mental awareness, he hasn't had opportunity to say no to sin. Now, he, there's no possibility of this child sinning because of his unique status. But in order for him to be a perfect Savior or a mature, well-formed Savior, this is Hebrews 2, um, he needs to suffer like unto his brethren. So in that same sense, Joseph needs to be prepared to be used by God by journeying through the humiliations of this fallen world and bringing him to a place where he is mature and perfect as a redeemer for his father's family. Mm. Now that's, that's a, a lot to get out of a single word, but um, that's why I picked the word. I, I wanted, again, laying the groundwork week by week by week, sermon by sermon, laying the groundwork for a, a, a more fully developed understanding of our faith and particularly of uh, concentrating on Christ. So, and, and because I, I highlighted the, the pattern of Joseph's life as being like a Christ-like pattern, mm -hmm. I, I, I hoped that we, we could see that just as Joseph was humiliated in an even greater and more important way, so was Jesus. And I, I don't think we use the word correctly in a modern sense, so there was a bit of a... Of a hmm. What's the word? A, a, not cultural snobbery, uh, but just a bit of a protest against... Yeah, you're taking it back. Yeah, taking I'm, take, it I'm for, taking it back. Re, re, I'm redeeming humiliation for <laughs> right. for its uh, higher purpose than what it's uh, yeah. more more commonly used for.
So, on the matter of Christ-likeness, do we need a verse that says Joseph is a type of Christ, or, or are we warranted, as I, as I said in the sermon, are we warranted in seeing and observing patterns and drawing conclusions in our own minds that this is indeed a type of Christ? Yeah, I don't, I don't think that there has to be a verse in the New Testament that explicitly links Joseph to, to Jesus. Um, we would be hard-pressed to find that for many of the people in the, in the Old Testament, of whom we can see types of Christ, you know, involved in their lives and, and what God did through them. So... Um, so no, we, we don't need it to be stated explicitly. Um, I don't think that we also, on the other side of the coin, need to go to extreme lengths to make sure that every single page in the Old Testament, we can find a nice, neat link as well to Jesus and the mm-hmm. person of, of Jesus. So you know, for what it's worth. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the whole Bible, the, all of Scripture sp- points to and speaks of and teaches us about the gospel and Jesus. So I'm not trying to say that the Old Testament has nothing to do <clears throat> with Jesus um, or even every aspect of the, of the Old Testament. I think all of the Scriptures are uh, are part of God's redemptive story that culminates in in Christ but you know I I think sometimes we get hung up on trying to read Christ into things Mm -hmm. because it seems like it's the right thing to do right or like it's important that we figure out what that connection might be Um, or again kind of to, to your question well you know, Paul never writes about Joseph and Jesus being like one another, so there, there's definitely no connection. There. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I particularly liked your phrase, all the scriptures speak of Christ, and then you explained it by using the, the term a redemptive story. And that's definitely where I was drawing my authority because a preacher is nothing if he has no authority. My authority for saying Joseph mirrors in many important ways the life and ministry of our Lord, it's because of, uh, sometimes we'll say, that the story-formed nature of redemption, which is to say redemption is historical. It's happening in and through history, history itself is an outworking of God's redemptive plan, which is to say, Scripture is eschatological. <laughs> so you probably Uh-oh. knew I was we, going there. We need like an alarm or something that, that goes off. <laughs> or a tip jar. Got <laughs> <laughs> a little bell every time I mention either Voss or eschatology, one of the two, and, and double tip when they're benching. We have the some people set. who just uh, hit the stop button, and we have many other people who just cranked up the volume. That's right. So. <laughs> That's right. But listen, listen to Spurgeon on... on uh, yes, the, the, the great, the great, the great the, theologian on eschatology. Yes. Um, 
um, this is his sermon, Joseph and his Brethren. Joseph is a very eminent type of Christ. That's the first line. When he was hated of his brethren because he protested against their sins, and when they sold him for 20 pieces of silver, he was doubtlessly a portrait of the despised and rejected of men whom his disciple betrayed. Afterward, in his temptation in the house of Potiphar, in the slander and consequent imprisonment in the roundhouse of Pharaoh's prison, in his after advancement, till he became Lord over all the land of Egypt, we clearly see our blessed Lord right well betray, portrayed. <laughs> Indeed, so well is the picture drawn that there is scarcely a stroke, even though it should seem to be a mere accidental incident of the picture, which has not its symbolic meaning. And this is the phrase I like. You shall read the history of Joseph through 20 times, and yet you shall not have exhausted the type. You shall begin again and find still some fresh likeness between this despised son of Rachel and the son of Mary, who is also God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Hmm. That sermon, that's Spurgeon's first paragraph to his sermon. That was just one sentence, right? It was like, it was a Pauline <laughs> sentence, right? <laughs> Uh, as only Spurgeon could write, but I, I I do I do think Spurgeon perhaps goes in excess when he finds types and 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 examples of Christ. But what a what a wonderful invitation to read the story of Joseph twenty times, and each time finding a new wrinkle or layer or nuance in which the life and ministry of our Lord is um, exhibited. Hmm. And it's, it's, it's a fun way to read the Bible. I think it brings a lot of, uh, one of, the, one of our, our congregants after church said, I'd never seen in Joseph a picture of Christ before. Hmm. And so that, that's an encouraging, that's an encouraging, you know, this fellow is, is, has a whole world of the Bible that's going to be opening up to him. So, um, I mean, the, the, we, we actually have a lot in, in Genesis on, on Joseph. You know, there, there are some, some men and women in the Bible where we get just little snippets of information, and then there's others where we get a ton of stuff. And Joseph, obviously, we, we have a lot on yeah, four, Joseph's, Joseph's life. 10, 12, 14 chapters. Um, and we don't have, I mean, and you have more sermons, I presume, on Joseph forthcoming, and we don't have time today to get into every part of his life, but maybe let's take the piece that was within view from your sermon, and um, I know one of the things you had mentioned to me was that there are a lot of um, coincidences, yeah. I, would, I would argue providences, that happen that kind of dictate or determine Joseph's life, you know, frankly, and, and kind of what God ends up doing with and through Joseph that are completely outside of his control, that are out of 
what I would argue would be the normal course right. of life right? Um, that God utilizes. And there's a lot. Like, there's yeah. they stack. Yeah. So I, I do want to see if we can list off a handful of them just because our listeners will benefit from that. But maybe we can start with a general discussion of providence. Uh-huh. Do you remember the catechism on providence, or do you want to look it up? It's God's most holy, wise, and Blessed, powerful, powerful, preserving and governing uh, all, all his, his creatures and all, all their, their actions. actions. Yeah. So his most holy, wise, and powerful, all three are important. But in particular, let's concentrate on the wisdom of God hmm. in arranging the circumstances of Joseph's life, the wisdom hmm. of it. And in fact, when Joseph is treated in some of my of the books in my <laughs> around my feet right now uh, the, the listener can picture me with the microphone and there's a little slit where i'm looking at you and the rest is piles of books all around yes yes indeed <laughs> <laughs> but um um in, in joseph is actually treated in uh, in the in systematic theologies under the providence of God and under the wisdom of God. Hmm. And I find that so very helpful to read Joseph's life in terms of look at the wisdom of God in doing what he did. God has a plan. He knows what he's doing. And it's his most holy, wise, and powerful preservation and governing of Joseph's life and all of the people around Joseph's life, even down to the detail. Sometimes details that we would think would be seemingly inconsequential. Hmm. So on that topic of providence, before we jump into the story of Joseph specifically, how does that strike you, Tim, as being important in, in a secular world? Um. I think the way I would answer that is um, th- there are no true like coincidences in the normal definition of that word. So things don't happen without a, a reason behind them. It's not randomness mm-hmm. or chance or mm-hmm. fate or... Mm-hmm. You know, insert other word here that a lot of people probably would, would be want to use. Um, luck is a luck, famous one. Yeah. So, um, I do think that it's when someone says "good luck on your presentation," do you say "thank you" or do you say do you sternly correct them and say "there are there is no such thing as luck"? Uh, I usually just think just think them. Yeah. Depends on who it is and and the context. Sometimes I'll I'll take it take it as an opportunity to to make a comment um i think we can say good luck this is a definitely an aside mm-hmm. i don't i don't think it's unchristian to to use the phrase because we're describing how we experience life it seems chance it seems you know in french it's bon chance so it seems 
I hope all the chances and serendipities and coincidences of your day align, you know, because that's, life does seem so, so random. Mm. And Joseph's life must have felt a little random. I guess where I have a problem with good luck is you, you have an opportunity there to say, you know, I don't know, not may the force be with you, but may mm. providence be with you, kind mm. of uh, riffing off of George Lucas's uh, famous saying, um, you know, may God be with you. Mm -hmm. God's speed was maybe an older, mm -hmm. older and I better. Do you use it? Occasionally. You, so you're, you're, you're heralding all the way back to the 19th century at this point. Well, it just seems like a better way to say what I mean. Mm-hmm. May God speed all of your lucks and chances, right? <laughs> speed you through them. Like if 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 um, if one of our our fellow elders is is exhorting at another church or something, you know, God I, speed. I, yeah, I, I don't want to say God luck, speed and God what bless. I mean, but I, not that they would take it that way. So I don't necessarily have an issue with good luck. I think there are some contexts or ways that you could say that that I would take issue with. Like, if if something bad is likely to happen, mm -hmm. or might, there's a good chance of something happening here. Well, good luck with that. You know, like, I, I don't particularly nah. care for that kind of approach, you know? Because that, to me, isn't even a... a, a Add some cynicism to the Yeah, that's agnosticism. not even a charitable way of using that, that phrase. Mm -hmm. So, anyway, I, I digress here, but... Well, our friend Joe Gamboa used to emphasize amongst his peer group with his job, God bless, mm. and he said, I meant it. So, you know, in, in South Jersey, dumb, the God bless can be something as, as vacuous as good luck for mm -hmm. some people. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, God bless you when you sneeze almost means nothing in a room, yet in, in, in a... In a South Jersey context, the room will be a chorus of God bless you's when someone sneezes. Yep. Out of the most unlikely people, we'll, we'll offer the benediction upon the sneeze. Mm -hmm. um, I think back to Providence, is it a common view? I think it is, but maybe you can reflect on this, that God's in charge of the big picture, but not in the details. Do I think that's the common view? Is that a common view that the people hold? Well, like people who question. believe in God, to to uh, push that a little bit, this is... Um, I, Paul, I, go ahead. Paul, Paul Helms, Providence of God, says, this is page 18, an important part of our faith as Christians is that God cares for us and that the detail and direction of our lives are under the purposeful control of God. We draw comfort from the fact that nothing is too small to escape the attention of God, nor too minute for him to bother about. We draw inspiration from the fact that God has the power to make difficulties disappear. But we are also aware that often when we pray, God does not appear to answer, and that personal tragedy, sickness, and bereavement can be allowed by God without any alleviation. Much that happens seems pointless or purposeless. The Lord can take away as well as give, and Christians can receive evil things at his hands as well as good things. In this medley of good and evil, Christians may also be convinced that 
Particular events have occurred as a result of God's direct concern. And so we may come to regard some events in our lives as being particularly providential. It is highly likely that the average Christian tends to think that divine providence has to do not with every detail, but chiefly with special providential occurrences. So, Helm is saying that a lot of us don't see God in the details, but only with kind of these highlight moments. Or broad stroke. The broad stroke, the big Mm -hmm. picture. Mm -hmm. He goes on to argue that we shouldn't see it that way. I agree with him. I agree on both on both counts. I think we're likely and prone to look at things in broad strokes. And I think it's because we minimize God. I think we don't consider God to be as big, you know, as as he actually is. Because if if he is omniscient and omnipotent, then if he is as big as he as he is, then every single detail to the smallest detail matters and is important and is paid attention to because he is big enough to do that. I think our brains, at, at least for me, I struggle to remember that he, like, I stub my toe. That God cares about that. And I go, there's no, like, why could any, I don't, my wife doesn't even care that I stub my toe. But God is so big mm-hmm. that it's not beyond him or beneath him, would be, maybe a better way to put it, mm-hmm. for him to care about that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I agree with I agree with Helma on both counts. And I, I'll i speak for myself. I, I think we see that generally. I think I could make the case that's mm-hmm. probably the case for most of us. Um, but the details do matter. Yes, I agree. And before we um, go to some specifics in Joseph, I need to take a bathroom break. <laughs> so we should maybe hit pause. Sure, or, sure. And I'm going to give you some editing to do there. Unless you don't want to edit it out. I drank three cups of tea this morning. <laughs> <coughs> hey, Rocky. Hello.
Now back to our regularly scheduled program. programming. <laughs> See, that's the beauty of not doing these things live is that I could edit all of this out and no one would know the difference. Mm-hmm. Or I could leave just that little snippet just in, that and, in and leave the mystery there for our listeners to figure out what we might be referring that's to. That's right. So if God is in the details in Genesis 37, maybe starting around verse 12, mm-hmm. Just off the top of your head, <laughs> pick out some details that might seem to be coincidental or or too small to matter, and let's see let's see if we can you know if this hadn't happened, then this wouldn't have happened and and so forth. So what's the first thing? what does thirty seven twelve say? Uh, now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. Okay, so just to kind of get us going, that's a long ways away. I, I, th- I think my Bible geography tells me it's like 50 miles. Mm. So it's, it's quite a trip mm. on foot. We're talking at least two or three days journey. So they needed to have gone, for whatever reason, they went to pasture at some distance. Right. So that's a detail that God was in charge of. And then um, what happens next? Um, Jacob sends Joseph to his brothers. Two and a half or three days away. (laughs) For what reason? We're not told. We don't know. But I think it's an important detail because yeah. if he hadn't gone, they wouldn't have plotted, they wouldn't have had the, the nerve to do that at home. Right. Yeah. Um, just reading through the story. If you look at 17, it turns out they're not in Shechem. No, they're, they're at Dothan. Dothan mm-hmm. And Dothan is a much more remote area, mm. even beyond Shechem. Um, it's possible that the father wouldn't have sent um, J- uh, Joseph to check on the, the boys, the men, if he knew that it was in an even more remote location other than, other than Shechem itself. Yeah, and he only knows to go there because he runs into a man and asks him. An unnamed man. Yeah. Who happened to know where the brothers were. Right. (laughs) By the way, we're only um, six verses into into this. What does 17a say? Uh, And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So even he happened to have overheard a conversation yeah this unnamed man this unnamed man that joseph semi-randomly in shechem runs into overheard the brothers maybe coming through they were at the bar getting you know around a miller lights or whatever uh and they overheard them saying we're going to dothan right and that's the exact man that joseph runs into yeah and if and if they're pasturing their flocks they're not in a city no in shechem 
they're pasturing flocks. Right. So, like, you know, what could have possibly happened where this unknown? I don't know man- if you have ever been to like New Mexico, but if you're behind a hillside that's even a mile away, you won't, you can't see someone, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to be a huge hill. Mm-hmm. So, finding the brothers alone was quite, quite a random you know, random, not random series of coincidences, not coincidences. <laughs> right, right. And we go on and on. Yep. So, I mean, it, the, the, the slave trader was going by. I mean, if, if Reuben hadn't excused himself, his plan would have prevailed, and he would have likely restored Joseph to his father Jacob, and the brother's revenge would not have been uh, given would not have been able to have been realized. But Reuben proposes the plan, which is accepted. Right. Runs and gets a cup of coffee, you know, or whatever he does. We're not told in the story what he does. He comes back, and Judah has taken the stage with his plan, and all you can see are the jingling bells of this slave caravan. Joseph's long gone. Mm -hmm. So... You know, what are the odds? And, and then he gets placed in Potiphar's house, again, seemingly right. randomly. Right. And it isn't just Potiphar. It's Potiphar's house who has a wife who lives in, apparently in an unsatisfied marriage so that Joseph becomes the object of her sexual desire. I mean, he, he could have been sold to anyone. Yeah. But, and again, it's not just Potiphar, but Potiphar is a high-ranking Egyptian official. Presumably, this has something to do with where Joseph ultimately gets put into jail because he's Potiphar's slave. He gets put in a high-ranking Egyptian official's prison, which is where he's going to meet the cupbearer to Pharaoh. Right. So that's a lot of ifs. Yeah. And I I love how the Bible just kind of plainly these are not highlighted no you know what i mean like no. there's no there's no blinking arrows pointing at these things right. i mean let me just read verse 36 in chapter 37 meanwhile the midianites <laughs> had sold him in egypt to potiphar an officer of pharaoh the captain of the guard like that's verse 37 36 rather okay so Show me where in Genesis 37 the name of God is mentioned. <laughs> um, I don't think... I don't even think even by the narrator, like Moses is writing this, yeah. Moses nowhere mentions God. Yeah, no, not anywhere. So this is what's called, what I would call a, an absence or a silence that is deafening. Mm-hmm. We are not permitted to read this as some fantastic, like you said, a a big flashing neon sign, you know, vacancy in this hotel. We're not permitted to read this as some sort of an astounding God story. It's Esther-like in the Mm -hmm. intentionality of avoiding the name of God, Mm because God is not mentioned once in the book of Esther, and yet God is on every page. It's the hidden God, Mm -hmm. and it's the hidden God here, Mm -hmm. which I think tells us a little bit about the state of mind about Joseph and the brothers and Jacob and Potiphar, for that matter. 
Now, once we get to 39, we do, we do see God sort of popping up a little bit. But in 37... Yeah, even in the first verse, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Like, Moses goes out of his way to frame that without... I mean, he could have said the God, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yeah. He, he could have said that, but he doesn't. So I, th- I think we see, um, we see warrant here mm. for reading Joseph as arrogant and in need of refining because his entire early experience is one where God is not mentioned. Mm. And he has to learn that God is at the center and he, he does by chapter 47 and chapter 50. We do see him explicitly, but only in, in retrospect, explicitly giving God credit for what happened in chapter 37. But I think we are, you know, Moses, the, the author, wants us to experience a little bit of what Joseph himself experienced, which is the seemingly random nature of this. Where is this all going? <laughs> I thought we were in a God story. And I think that's one reason why we, we love reading this is because it mirrors our own experience. So often, the holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all his actions, we only see that at the end. Mm. And in, in the midst of it, it feels pretty random. Mm. So we preach on providence, Tim. Providence becomes an important theme in, in, in pulpit preaching because our lives and society, the secular society in which we're, we're immersed in, in this kind of a, a God-muted society, um, is constantly tempting us to feel like there is no point to my life. There is no point to the story. And if there is, it's just because God doesn't care. Or he's mean. Right. Or, or the points that God is involved in are the ones that we pick that are generally going to be the positive mm-hmm. things. So to kind of bring us back around, because we were talking about Joseph's humiliation, that means that his humiliation is providentially ordained and orchestrated by God. I mean, you made this point. Mm -hmm. But it's not just the marvelous things. And we pointed out kind of like, what are the chances? You know, it's like hitting hitting the lottery that these things would happen. And the arc of Joseph's life kind of trends upward in that regard. Like it kind of... He sees a lot of favor from his father, but everything else kind of goes bad for him in a way. You know, his brothers despise him. They plot against him. He gets sold to the slave traders and he gets sold to Egypt, you know, to be in Potiphar's house. And then he gets put in prison and then, you know, so on and so forth. And you start seeing kind of his, his arc trend upward from there. But even in the humiliation aspect of that, the humbling aspect of that, that's God's providence. Like that's God at, at work, not 
because the arc has to go upward, right? Not because necessarily by definition, it's not like God has to do those things in order for there to be this glorious climactic outcome at the end per se in Joseph's life. Sometimes the humiliation, the humbling, the, the sufferings are there in and of themselves, not because there, there is something better for us because of Christ in that we are drawn closer to him. But it doesn't mean that the suffering in this life necessarily has to end. You see what I mean? So like the, I guess what I'm trying to say is we're often, as we were saying, we look at God's providence in broad strokes. And for me, I am much more quick to say, thank you, God, for the blessings that come about sure. that I am, I did not deserve. They were completely out of my control. God was gracious to me. They go, thank you, God. I'm going to acknowledge your providence in my life in that way. I am That's, not so quick to say, right. thank you, God, for when things, quote unquote, don't go my way. Right. Right. But that is just as much God's providence in my life as the, the things going my way. So that's what I'm trying to say. Right. And that did come up in the message when I said it isn't our first impulse to say thank you. And partly why I picked this word humiliation, which is so rich in theological in a theological milieu. Mm -hmm. And so horrifying in the average kind of suburban South Jersey milieu. Like you don't plan your day thinking about <laughs> humiliation right. from a secular standpoint. And yet that's the very thing that God planned for his son. Mm. And in the life of Joseph, we see that mm. pattern as well. Uh, classic, we've quoted a couple of classics here already. We've got Paul Helm on the providence of God. We've got a Spurgeon sermon. And here I have J.I. Packer, uh, Knowing God. Commenting on Joseph, he said, So far as Joseph personally was concerned, answering the question, Why in God's wisdom did he plan this? So far as Joseph personally concerned, the answer is given in Psalm 105, verse 19. The word of the Lord tried him. Joseph was being tested, refined, and matured. He was being taught during his spell as a slave and in prison to stay himself upon God, to keep cheerful and charitable in frustrating circumstances, and to wait patiently for the Lord. God uses sustained hardship to teach these lessons very frequently. <laughs> So far as the life of God's people was concerned, Joseph himself gave the answer to our question when he revealed his identity to his distracted brothers. God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And it, it is interesting that Packer quotes Psalm 105, which is uh, a recounting of 
the lives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the, the larger context, 105.16, when Jehovah summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron, and here's the 19, until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. So Packer, such a good Bible student, finds the reference to Joseph in Psalm 105 and that phrase trying or testing and gives warrant to my approach to the text. So I have, you know, Father Packer to, to, <laughs> to back me up on this. We are, we are told by the Bible to read the story of Joseph as a testing and a trying and a preparation of the man Joseph before he's ready to be used. And I think we need to see the same thing at work in our lives. But not easy, is it? Yeah, my head goes, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's why we look at Joseph and we're kind of amazed. Like, I mean, I look at Joseph and I go, how, to, how the heck did that guy kind of persevere, not lose faith? Even in the midst of one thing after another, like every time he tries to do something good or right he doesn't seem to get what he deserves from that you know he kind of gets the opposite and yet god continues to bless him and be with him and um i guess that that's a good lesson in and of itself that you know sometimes the outcomes don't in our from our perspective from our earthly creaturely human perspective the outcomes don't align or they don't match what we think the inputs were mm -hmm. right <clears throat> that doesn't mean that, that that that's god's perspective on it which is much more impor important than ours because he sees things that you know and, and in his providence he's using these things right. that we can't possibly imagine right so we go why the heck did israel send joseph to his brothers we know that his brothers despised him. There's no real reason to send him over to Shechem. And yet he did it anyway. It doesn't seem like a smart thing to do. No. But there's so, God's wisdom. So this is the deeper cut, Tim. <laughs> and um, excellent book. Uh, one more excellent book reference. Tim Keller, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, which I'm holding here. We actually did a study on this book last year, or was it this, this year, this spring? Mm -hmm. um, and it was uh, really appreciated by our, our fellowship. But uh, Keller talks about the life of Joseph and points out that Dothan is this is the site or the location of another supernaturally important redemptive historical event. Only only Keller would know this, right? So apparently, uh, in the story of Elisha, with uh, later on in the Bible, he is praying for deliverance, and God provides an immediate miracle. Uh, 
And in that story of Elisha at Dothan, the servant's eyes are opened and he sees the skies filled with God's chariots. Mm. And so the compar- here's how Keller makes the comparison. He says, God was just as present, this is um, on page 263 of the book, God was just as present and active in the slow answers to Joseph as in the swift answers to Elisha. He was as lovingly involved in the silence of the cistern as he was in the noisy, spectacular answer to Elisha's prayer. And indeed, it could be argued that Joseph's salvation, while less supernatural and dramatic, was greater in depth and breadth and effect. The story tells us that very often God does not give us exactly what we ask for. Instead, he gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. <laughs> That's a great line. That's a great line. Boy, that, that summarizes providence. The mm. holy, this is where we started, and maybe we can land the plane here. The holy, wise, and powerful providence of God. It's ho- we, are, we are unholy in our expectations of the events of our lives and whatever our listeners are going through like today as they're listening to this. Ch- check, check your agenda today. Is it a holy agenda? Well, it's not as holy as God's agenda for you. Is it wise how you plan to spend your time today? Well, let's, let's put the best spin on it. You tried. You really did try. Mm-hmm. But it... it it doesn't even compare to the wisdom of God for your, his agenda for you today. And is it powerful? Well, that, you don't even need to mention that because we all feel impotent in the face of the onslaught of the daily tasks. It's like this happens and that. I mean, think about supply chain issues, you know, uh, which is kind of the, that's got to be the word for maybe 2022, 2021. Anyway, it's, <laughs> it's like the new phrase. Supply chain issues, you know, the burger is now $40. Supply chain issues. Well, we're powerless in, in the face of these massive titanic forces, but not God. Mm-hmm. God's providence is holy, wise, and powerful. And what, what that last phrase from Keller that I love about it is, is that his providence spools out what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows, but we don't. And mm-hmm. so we often ask amiss, that, as scripture says, that we would spend it on our pleasures. But God's, even there, God's providence is patient, patient with our askings. And uh, he ultimately prevails. Yeah, it's not just the, the, the other half of that definition is not just the governing of all his creatures. It's the preserving. That's true. And governing. So I think we we often can also fall into the trap of God's providence is against our our good in some way or against what we want and we should get what we want. But really God's provi- without God's providence, we would really be in a world of hurt in that regard. Like mm-hmm. He preserves us. Um so it's it's always good. It's always perfect. It's always wise. It's always obviously powerful, but it's always for our good. Mm-hmm. That's true. Even though we we can't see it that way, um, or 
don't want to acknowledge that that's the case, maybe. So. Well, we've got material here for another sermon, uh, for yeah, sure. Yeah. And, and I think we see in, in, in Joseph's, we see that playing out in Joseph's life. And we'll see that more, I'm sure, in coming weeks. Where I think Joseph starts to, um, he starts to understand that definition of God's providence in a way. Um, or at least we see that more explicitly in the text going forward. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have his struggles. Um, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that too, because Joseph seems to have a, a bone to pick a little, a little bit with his, with his brothers, even, even he, though he sees God's hand yeah, at work. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's going to, that's going to be we, fun. We struggle with that too. But that's yeah, a that's a conversation for another yeah that's gonna another be fun to cut. unpack that one. <laughs> um, Rocky, what did we miss, bud? Anything we didn't get to today? Oh, he's been standing at rapt attention the whole time, mm -hmm. just hanging on your every word, Tim. Yeah, he he's looked at you very peculiarly while you've tried to. Um, get out from your mountain of books, your cavern, <laughs> your cavern that you've built around your books. Um, but, uh, I, I thought I think it was a good conversation. Um, I appreciate kind of going down the path of, of Providence, especially in light of the sermon on humiliation. I think it's important to, to put those two hand in hand. Um, and what better time of year to do that than the Advent season? Hmm. Because it's what, <laughs> that's what kind of Advent and Christmas is all about, is Christ's humiliation in the truest definition and sense. The, would you say, the uh, theological milieu mm -hmm. of, of humiliation? Right. right. Um, and that being in God's providence, that that, that would be the case. So, anyway, we hope that you've uh, enjoyed the conversation this week and that it was helpful to you. Um, I'm really looking forward to continuing this sermon series. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I'm looking forward to, I think, First John, right, is next year. I'm looking forward to that upcoming, but I'm, I'm going to be a little disappointed when we wrap up the Patriarchs. I've really had a good time. Um, I've gotten through these sermons. A lot of people have said that, and that's been a really neat surprise. Yeah, I, I wouldn't, I certainly would not say that the Patriarch series was like a placeholder or something like that, but it, I, I think we've gotten a lot more out of it as a church than I was kind of expecting. Yeah, and I know too. personally, me I've gotten too. a lot more out of it. Um, and I, so I appreciate, as I always say, or try to always say, I appreciate your, your efforts on a weekly daily basis and prayer for our church in preparation for Sunday mornings. I'm disappointed that we won't be hearing from you on Sunday, but I'm, I'm thankful that you'll get a, a break for a week. And, and pastor, pastor Parks is a, is a great preacher. I think uh, I want to ask you to hold your judgment because you may want him to come that back. There's no comment about him. Okay. Uh, this just, okay. you know, it's more a comment yeah. about you. Yeah, so. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> but regardless, um, we have m more of these to come um, through the holiday season. We'll 
We'll keep it going to the best of our ability with all the other activities going on yeah, as may. the holidays approach. Um, but until next week or the next recording, whenever whenever that may be, we pray that you would be blessed and um, Godspeed. God's yeah. <laughs> Let's end with that. Godspeed. I, I like that. I like that. And also, I'll maybe we won't end exactly with that, but um, I'd encourage you all, our listeners, to. Consider God's providence for you today as you're listening to this. And maybe as, as we learn from um, the late Dr. Keller, try to... We can't get there. We can't know what God knows. But we can acknowledge that fact. And we can look at our circumstances differently based on the, the truth that we are his creatures and he is our, our good and gracious creator. So... We pray that this time has been a blessing to you and that um, you'd be encouraged as you finish out your day, whatever you may be doing, that God is in control of what's going on, that he loves you and he does have a plan for you and it is for your good. And we'll be with you again soon on The Deeper Cut. Deeper Cut.